0: Good news. I have good news for us this morning, my friends, because the good news is this. This is right out of our passage of Romans chapter 8, that God is for us. Okay? God is for us, and that's a big deal. When we look around at the world that we live in, when we look around at all the things that that happen, whether that's in our day-to-day lives, whether that's in social media, uh, whether that's even just in our relationships, we don't hear a lot of good news. We don't hear that a lot of people are for us, do we? In fact, we hear a lot of times that people are against us. We hear that people are talking about us. We hear that people are uh, being negative toward us in our world today. But we don't hear good news too often. And the fact that God is for us is the best news that I could bring to you this morning. And that's exactly what Paul is saying as we pick up in Romans chapter 8. And so as we, as we dive in today, um, we are going to be looking at the last passage, the last section of Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 31 down through 39 today. And we've, we've been spending the last six weeks diving through what the Apostle Paul has been talking about in Romans chapter 8. He's been talking about the life in the Spirit. What does it look like to live a spirit-filled life. If, if God has sent his spirit to dwell among us and in us, what should our lives look like? Paul has compared and contrasted what it looked like to live in the, in the spirit versus living in the flesh. He's talked about what does it look like to live in the present, but yet to yearn for what's ahead, for the promised day of Christ's return and what that will look like. So today, we find ourselves at the tail end of this this passage, talking about the life of the Spirit. And and this is one of the most encouraging and moving passages, I think, that we can find in all of God's Word. Um, If if you are a follower of of Jesus today, we can find great hope and encouragement in the words that, that Paul has written in this passage. God is for you and I want us to really think about that. I want us to really take an inventory of, of what that means um, because like I said a minute ago I, I don't think that that is something that we hear a whole lot right? God is for. God is for, and fill your name in right there, right? While it's true that Paul wrote this uh, to the Roman church, uh, while it's true that Paul wrote this some 2,000 years ago, the words are still true for us today. And so just like Paul is writing these encouraging words to this church, I think we can take the same encouragement today. And we can fill our name in that blank. God is for, and put your name in the blank. God is for you. It's good news it's good news. And so how, right? So, so, so let's look at verse 31. We're just going to kind of walk through this passage uh, verse by verse, kind of chunk by chunk as we go today. Look at verse 30, 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul here is, is posing the question, right? If the God of the universe who, who just spoke everything into existence, just by his sheer might was able to speak all into existence. If that same God is for you, who in the world can be against you? Amen. Right? Sure. And, and while that's a philosophical question, it's also a very practical question in our lives. Right? Because I know how it goes because it's it's true in my life as well. Right? We, we go through life and we experience these these hard times. We go through hard relationships, we have people that are uh, against us, and while we may not have uh, an arch nemesis, right, like we see in a lot of movies, we could probably all stand up and and share stories of times that we've had people against us, right? People that have done stuff to hurt us, who were uh, trying to somehow get at us. And tear us down. Whether that's uh, whether that's betrayal of a trusted friend, whether that's gossip, uh, right in a workplace or in, in the school, whether that's bullying that happens, and that's just not in school today. That happens throughout our world. Uh, whether it's deception and lies that someone has told you and manipulated you in some way, right? If God is for you, who can be against you? See, when we compare the eternal, everlasting God to those people. This is the argument that Paul is making. He's saying, if, if God is for you, who can be against you? And he's going to answer his, his own question here in the next couple of verses. In verse 32 through, through 33, he says this. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Right? God is for you. How do we know that? Really simple. It's Jesus. Jesus is the proof that God is for you. And that's what we celebrate today. Is that, that, that Jesus is God's proof that he's for you. That he loves you. The depth that God would go... To give his son for each one of us, right? That's the message of Easter. Is that he would give his own son to die in in our place as a ransom for us. The fact that God would do that shows that God is for us. I can't think of of a more important or impactful um, or, or, or poignant way of saying that God is for us than what he did by giving his son to die in our place. And so that's how Paul starts this passage. That he gave Jesus for us because God is ultimately for us. And that's how he demonstrated that. that. Because ultimately it is, it is God who did that. Now, the remainder of our time today, we're going to focus on verse 34. We're going to focus, focus just on one verse this morning. Because uh, Paul writes in verse 34, what, what is the importance? Why is it uh, such a big deal that he gave Jesus For us. And he's going to walk through what that exactly looked like. And we're going to find great hope in that today. So, verse 34 says this Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us? I think it's uh, important that we address the first question here that Paul asked. Paul says, Who is it to condemn, right? Who is it that can bring a charge against you? And there's only one person that would have been able to do that, and that was Jesus, right? He is the only one that that has come and walked and lived this life and done it perfectly. He's the only one that could have brought a charge against us. But yet we see here in this verse that he is for us. And so the one who is the one who could have brought a charge against us is the one that is actually for us. Today. See, this reminds me of Romans chapter eight verse one, where we started this whole series on. Romans chapter eight verse one says this There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That word condemnation, we don't use that a whole lot today, right? But it's the the idea of of a judgment coming down on somebody, right? To to be able to blame somebody, to to be able to, to judge them based on their actions. And here Paul is writing that for those that are in Christ, those that have uh, come under the blood of Jesus, there is no condemnation. And that's good news. That is good news for us that have come under the blood of Jesus. And so Paul is going to go on and explain how this came into being. How is it that we are no longer condemned? Well, first he says, Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus died for you. Right? Jesus the one, the perfect Son of God, came and died in our place. And that word there uh, died in the Greek. Uh, it comes from two words that, that really bring the idea of separation from something that was previously united. And so so, so, so what Paul is getting the idea is that, that, that Christ, right, who lived in eternal existence with the Father and the Spirit. Right, who lived together. He came. He separated from the Father, and he came to this earth, and he walked around, and he lived this life, and he was tempted. The Bible says in every way that we were tempted, right. And in that separation, he ultimately took the judgment that was that was due to us. He took that onto himself, and he died for us. And so that begs the question, I think, for us, for a lot of us, is why did Jesus need to die for me? Right. I'm not that bad of a person. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I have a few things that I don't get right, and if you ask my wife, she could probably give you a few more things than I can, right? But, but I'm not, like at the core, I'm not that bad of a person, right? It's because we look at it from our perspective, right? Um, and so this morning, uh, I, I found a video um, that I feel like explains this better than I could stand up here and say it to you. I think sometimes through uh, the way God has gifted people, uh, and one of those ways is through the arts and, and creativity. Uh, he has gifted some people to create a video, that I think, that explains this whole idea of why Jesus needed to come and die much better than I could even stand up here and, and, and tell it to you this morning. Um, and so, what we're going to do is, we're going to watch this video. It's about five minutes, um, but I think it just paints the picture very beautifully um, of what it was, why it was that Jesus needed to actually come and die for us. Um, and so, we're going to watch that together, and then we will continue our discussion.
1: There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden.
2: And everything in this garden is great, it's exactly as it except there's this one tree that they're told by god not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them so that's it Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine right it seems pretty simple but in this garden there's a snake and it starts telling a different story it says that if you eat of this tree it's not going to kill you in fact it's going to make you become like god
1: and adam and eve they believe the snake and they eat the
2: fruit And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost, and evil and death enters into God's good world.
1: Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem.
2: Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today.
1: But there is some hope, because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve.
2: That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come, and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story, when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line And that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome the
1: first king that we meet from the line of judah is a guy named king david and he's a
2: hero maybe he is the snake crusher but it turns out that david is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity he never crushes the snake just the opposite however God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give into the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods.
1: Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. And the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out.
2: And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. (laughs) But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people.
1: But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about
2: never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, you know, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here, now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. the Fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus
1: has the power over evil and death for himself. And so
2: the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives.
1: But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world
2: all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth.
0: Get the lights back on. That would be great. Do you? Um, one of the things that we we hold really really important here at here at Bedrock Church in Franklin County is is the fact that we believe that it's not just about one guy standing up here and and talking. Even though that's a that's a part of it, and we feel like God has gifted people to teach the word to us. Um, we also believe that individually um, that that God is also speaking to us. And so part of what we like to do on a, on our time together on a Sunday morning is engage in some discussion together. Um, I, we've just seen it over and over again that sometimes when you can have a discussion about what it is that you're hearing, you just retain that so much better. Uh, you have such such a more personal interaction with that than just listening. Because let's be honest, we if we were to think back to the last sermon we went to, can you think of the points that the pastor made? Probably not all of them, right? Um, except for Ian, he probably does them all. Um, unless we write them down, right? But, but there's something about when we have a discussion and we interact with some of those thoughts um, that we just hold on to that in such a deeper way. And it's also important that we get to hear uh, from one another and, and some different perspectives on that. And so what we like to do is, is on our time together on Sunday morning, we take a few minutes and discuss some of the things that we're talking about from the passage. Um, and so what I want us to do, um, and we got a full room today, so this is really awesome. Um, the best that you can, try to get into groups um, like four to five works really well, um, of just people right around you. And we're just going to take a few minutes and discuss uh, this question. All right. From the video that we just watched, right, uh, let's just talk for a minute w- about the importance of what Jesus, Jesus is dying for humanity, right? Talk about the importance of, of that moment of why Jesus needed to come and die for humanity, what that was all about. Okay, so let's just talk for a few minutes about that, and then we'll come back together and we'll finish uh, going through this passage. Okay? All right, guys. um, I know I didn't give you enough time probably to get thoroughly into that question, um, but hopefully it was enough to get the discussion, get your minds moving in that direction. Um, And so Paul, Paul first makes the argument here that we see that God is for us because Jesus died right? Jesus died. And and, and so, so what we want to ask is, well, what does that mean for, for us, right? What 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 significance should that hold for us um, today? And I think it's this, because Jesus died, we can now live, Amen. right? I think that's the truth that this holds is that because Jesus died in our place, if we accept that, if we put our hope and trust in Jesus, we can now have life in him Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 he says but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us it's not about us getting it all together right that's good news let me just tell you that is good news that we don't have to get our act together and we don't have to be perfect when we come to Jesus right he he wants us to come to him as as the old hymn goes just as I am right in the midst of all of my mess, because without Him, we can't fix those things. There are things that are broken on the inside that we can't fix on our own. And we need Him to help us to do that. And so that is, that is, that is the great news, is that because Jesus died, we can now live in Him. Or as Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ took that death that we deserved and took it on himself. But Paul doesn't stop there. That's not the end. We wouldn't have Easter if if Christ had just died, right? In fact, I propose that if, if Christ had just died and that was the end, we would be like just about every other world religion out there. That's following somebody who's died. There's nothing special. There's nothing miraculous. There's nothing that I should invest my life in, in someone who just died. It's the fact that he died, but as Paul goes on to say, more than that, who was also raised from the dead, right? John Stott, uh, one of the great English uh, theologians, says it this way. He calls it the glorious paradox he says, we live and die, but Christ died and now lived. And I think that's a beautiful way to put it and a beautiful way to think about it, right? There's this paradox, right? He came to die so that he may live, right? He was raised again and ultimately through them, that through him, we may live as well. And so the resurrection now becomes the confirmation of God's accepting, right? The fact that that, that that Jesus not only died, but he raised that he was raised again. That is the confirmation that God accepted his sacrifice. Right? As as Paul says in Romans chapter one, verse four, he says this. And he, speaking of Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power. Listen to this, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by how? By his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. The resurrection was the proof that Jesus was who he says he was. The resurrection was the grand proof of his divine sonship, the fact that he was the son of God, right? History will tell us, right, leading up to the time of Jesus, that many had come and said that they were the Messiah. They'd come and said, hey, you know what? I'm the one that's going to fix this problem. I'm the one that those prophets had told you about. I'm the one. And they'd all died, and history had kind of forgotten their story. But when Jesus comes onto the scene and he's resurrected and he's brought back to life, that is the proof of him being the Messiah. See, the resurrection was also the guarantee of God's power to carry out this rescue plan that he had put into motion, right? Because Jesus died and was raised again, now we can have assurance and a promise. As Luke writes in Acts 17, verse 31 because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Listen to what it says about him. And of this, he has given assurance to all. We can have assurance that we are his, how? By raising him from the dead. That is the assurance that we can have is because Jesus was raised from the dead. The resurrection gives us assurance that Jesus is who he says he is. Or as uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers he put it this way. He says, Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since, de- since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. I think that's just incredible, right? Because Jesus came and died and conquered death, now those of us who are in him no longer have to fear death. Right? So the resurrection. The resurrection. And it's important, right? Christianity, as John Slott says, Christianity is in its essence a resurrection religion. The concept of the resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed, right? At the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to believe that Jesus not only died, but he also was raised from the dead. We can hold on to that hope this morning. And it's not just a hope in a religion, there's also historical facts that point to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we don't have time this morning to go into all of that. That's not really our focus today, but I want to point you in in a direction if that kind of interests you, because I know some of you out there, you're question people, right? You're like, yeah, I've heard that Jesus died. I've heard that he raised again, but, but I need some proof. I need some fact. I need to know, right? So let me point you in A few directions if that's you and you need to, uh, you want some more proof on the historical uh, accuracy of the resurrection. Um, One of those directions would be a guy named Gary Habermas, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S. He's a professor at Liberty University, and he has spent the majority of his time studying the resurrections and the proofs of the resurrections. He's written multiple books about that, um, and, and he's a great resource to go to. Um, just a few more I'll list off kind of quickly if, if this kind of interests you. Um, Josh McDowell is another guy who's done a lot of study on the resurrection. Uh, William Lane Craig, Lee Strobel um, are also other guys that may be helpful if you're trying to get some more information on the, the historical aspect of the resurrection. But maybe, maybe I can tie it all together with this story that I heard. Uh, maybe this will kind of help us. Um, kind of tie the bow on, on the, the significance of this. Um, there's a story about two little boys um, who were from Africa, and they were taken as slaves to an Arab master, right? And so this master had taken them, and he taught them everything about Islam. He taught them about Muhammad and what it meant to, to follow him and to believe in him. Uh, he, also, he also told them that there was this place where there was a coffin in this city um, where Muhammad's body lied, and so one day, um, these boys, as they had heard all this, as they had been grown, uh, grown up, kind of raised hearing about this religion, um, one day they came in contact with a missionary. And the missionary shared with them the story of Jesus, about his life that he lived, and about the death that, that he died, but then also about the resurrection, the fact that he came back to life. And as the story goes, the, the two boys were talking one night, and it was dark, and they were, they were talking in and, and, and their little hut, and they said, one of them said, what, what do you think? What do you think? Our master tells us that Muhammad is dead, and that his body is kept, uh, kept in this coffin. But the white man tells us that Jesus, right, the son of God who died, rose again and is alive. The other little boy says, I think I would rather believe in the living one, mm-hmm. right? Right? There's hope in the fact that Jesus isn't dead, but that he was raised to life. And So what does, that, what does that mean for us? What's the significance for us this morning? Because Jesus was raised, we also believe that there's coming a day that we will be raised in a like manner. There's coming a day that if we have our hope and trust in Jesus, that yes, we may experience death once on this earth, but eternity that we will spend with God, right? And we can put our hope and our trust in that. As Peter writes in first Peter chapter one verse uh, three through five, he says this Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Listen to how he describes this to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I love that that phrasing of a living hope. Right? Our hope isn't in the dead. Our hope isn't in something that's that's dead and past, but we have a hope in a living God, and that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean think about it for a minute. When we think about hope and the things that we put hope in in our lives, what are some of the things that we put hope in? We put hope in our job, right? We put hope in our financial stability. We put hope in our, even our family sometimes and other people and relationships. We put hope in our own hands, the American dream. If you work hard enough, if you do enough, you can have whatever you want. And while these things may bring a momentary amount of hope or encouragement in this life, we know that there's coming a point where all that's going to end. And I would beg you this morning to put your hope in something greater, in a living hope that doesn't stop when our time on earth ends, but in a living hope. So here's what I want us to do. Uh, We're going to take a few more minutes, um, and I want us to, in our groups, discuss the hope that comes with the resurrection of Jesus. What hope does that bring, knowing that Jesus didn't just die, but that he was raised again, okay? So let's talk about that and then we'll come back together. Yeah.
1: About, yeah. yeah. so it's just like journaling journey his you know, it, yeah. just, like, yeah. process, yeah. and like, that process and what it means. Yeah.
0: all the time yeah, I think it's what set me into my biggest challenge probably truly like with my faith being so lacking lately it's, like, it's, 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 it's such a overwhelming feeling at times and because the right.
1: medicine right. is it literally causing me to do
2: this all the time which is why I'm going to get change but yeah. still okay. because I'm going to check the voice and I'm going to help in the first place yeah. Yeah. So, I think it's very scary, it's a real thing. like that most of years and it's something that really is it wants to be a message for the terrifying
0: We come back together um, one more time. Um, there's a there's an incredible um, there's an incredible hope in that. Um, hopefully, hopefully in your in your time together, you had uh, a few minutes to talk about that hope. Uh, what that meant, that Jesus was raised from the dead, resurrected. Um, so if Jesus was raised from the dead, is that the end of the story? I say today, and as Paul's going to say, no, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. What I want us to to, to do with the remainder of our time together is, is look at what I'm kind of phrasing Easter 2.0. The Easter 2.0 message. Because here's what I think. I think a lot of times at Easter... We talk a whole lot about Jesus dying for our sins and him being resurrected. And that is vitally, fundamentally important. I don't want to take anything away from that. But Paul's going to go on and tell us that wasn't also the end of the story. What else did Jesus do for us? And so as we continue to, to, to work through this verse in verse 34, he's going to say, Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? Right? Right? And so the rest of that message is that Jesus has ascended and is interceding for us, right? Jesus has returned to heaven, right? And that he is at the right hand of God, as Paul says here, and that he is, excuse me, that he is interceding for us. So what does it mean that he is at the right hand of God? We know from our study of Scripture that that means that he has returned back to the place from which he came, right? He was before he came to this earth in the presence of God, and he is now returned back to the presence of God, right? And that, and that phrase there, the, the right hand of God, that's, that's a significant phrase. See, in the, in the Old Testament especially, but even in the New Testament, that phrase right hand uh, was associated with a, with a place of authority and of power and prestige. And so because of what Jesus did, he is now sitting judging the world. He is sitting in that position of power, And we shouldn't be surprised by this because Jesus foretold us that this would happen. In Matthew 26, 64, Jesus said this. It says, Jesus said to him, right, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus said, there's going to be coming a day. I'm going to die and then I'm going to be ascending back to this position of authority, and so he has been raised to that. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, goes into a greater explanation of what this means. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says this, that he, this is God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. He's been seated he now has this position of authority and we can have security in that where he is sitting at the right hand of God. And what's he doing? He's not just sitting there hanging out waiting for that day to come, right? But as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews nine twenty four, he says, for Christ has entered into not into a holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God, how on our behalf. Right, Jesus is now the go-between between us, sinful, broken man and God, and he is he is playing that part of interceding between us and God, making a way between us and God. In that video, there was that picture, right of of how um, if you guys remember, there was that scene where he gets he gets stabbed with the spear, right, and he dies, and then he then he stands back up, right, and he because he has died and went through that is now the healing of that person who had the corrupted heart. And that's kind of what Jesus does. He's now that go-between, between us, broken, sinful man, and God, the Father. He is interceding for us. He is going between. And that word interceding really brings the idea of um, someone going before a king to bring a petition a petition on someone else's behalf, right? And so if you imagine um, back in the day when when we had kings, like real kings, um, not like the kings we have today, but like real kings that, that kind of ruled over a region, um, and someone had um, maybe committed an offense or something to that kingdom, to that king, um, someone would come and bring a petition begging, right, begging that that person be released or be forgiven um, because of that crime. And that's kind of the idea of what Jesus is doing here. He is the go-between, he is interceding between us and God, and that is the message of what he's doing that's encouragement for us. In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews goes into great depth of this interceding and what that means. And so this is kind of a longer passage, but I want us to to go there together and to read this. um, Because I think it's significant to help us to understand what it is that Christ is doing. So join along with me as I I read. uh, It'll be up on the screen. He says this in verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priest were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he can because he continues forever. Consequently he is able to save to the uttermost. I love that thought there. Save to the uttermost. That means completely. There's no ounce that he's not able to save. He is able to absolutely save those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives, listen, to make intercession for us, to be the go-between between between God and us. For it it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent and unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins. And then for those of the people, since since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See Jesus was better than the old priest. The old system of the priest, they would have to go and they would have to make a sacrifice for their sins before they could enter into the presence of God. Because they were sinful, broken people. And even though they were called out to this special position as a priest, they were still sinful. And so they had to make a sacrifice, uh, an atoning sacrifice for their sin before they could enter into the presence of God. But because Jesus is perfect, he didn't have to do that. And so he becomes the perfect priest. And he is now able to go and intervene between us and God. So what does that look like, right? Well, Jesus... Is now in heaven interceding. He becomes the go-between between us and God, as Paul writes in First Timothy chapter two verse five. He says, "For there is one God and there is one mediator." Right. I, I love that picture. There's one mediator. There's one go-between between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Right. Jesus becomes the bridge now through which humanity can enter into relationship with God. Or as John writes in 1 John chapter two, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have one that is on our side with the Father, Christ Jesus, the, righteousness, the Righteous One. And so the good news today is that we have one that goes on our behalf, who can now enter into the presence of God and make petition and make intercession for us that can go and talk to God and to speak and be the go-between between us and God. Maybe to help us to, to understand this a little bit better, um, I heard a story this week or I read about a story this week about uh, there was this young soldier during the Civil War. He was a young Union soldier during the Civil War, and he had lost his father and his brother to the war. And so he went to Washington, D.C., Because he wanted to see if he could get exempt from the military service so he could go back and help his mom and his sister with the spring planting season. And so the young man appears, goes to the White House, and he approaches the White House and asks to see the president. And as we might expect, he was turned away, right? And so this young man was disheartened, and he goes and he finds a a park bench right outside the White House. And he sits down and just kind of puts his hands on his head and just doesn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, a little boy approaches him. And and the little boy says, uh, you look unhappy, soldier. What's wrong? And after he shared his story of, of what he was going through, the little boy took him by the hand and he walked him through the back door of the White House, past the guards into the president's office. President Lincoln looked up and said, what can I do for you, Tad? Tad said, Daddy, this soldier needs to talk to you. And the soldier was not turned away. See, I think that's a picture of what Jesus does. He goes to our Father for us. Because of our sin and our brokenness, we're not able to enter into his presence in that way. And so Jesus then becomes that mediator, that in-between between between us and God. So what does that mean for us today? Because Jesus is ascended and he's interceding between us and God, I can now have hope in my future. Right, I can have hope that there's a day coming when I'm going to spend eternity with my heavenly Father. Right, and the hope comes because it's not based on me. It's not based on me being good enough or doing enough good things. Right, I feel like I feel like our culture has has kind of got it all shifted around. Um, I was I was just looking at a statistic that said there's there's like a majority of our culture that believes that one day we'll all enter into heaven because at the core we're good people. We do enough good things. And the problem with that is that we can never do enough good things. Right? Our good things never outweigh all the the sin and the corruptness of our heart. And so the hope that we can have this morning is that our future is secure because it's not in us, but because of Jesus. And what he's done for us. Because he was able to make that payment that we were never able to make for ourselves. Or as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6, 19 and 20, listen to what he says. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. See, we can have an anchor of hope this morning. In a world that is rocky and messed up and we get hit every day from all sides, from all kinds of things, we can, be, we can be anchored in this steadfast hope, right? Because it's in Jesus, not in ourselves. And so as, we, as we've as we kind of finished this verse, here's what I want us to do. I want to take a few more minutes, um, and I want us to discuss the importance of, right the importance of knowing that jesus is going to god on our behalf that he's interceding that he's that he's a mediator between us and god right now um what is that practically right how how can that practically give me hope today to know that god's not looking at me based on all i can do but on on the fact that his son came as a bridge between humanity and god Okay, so let's take a few more minutes um, and discuss that question, uh, and then we will uh, wrap up uh, looking at uh, how Paul ends this passage. As we, as we kind of wrap up um, in this passage, as we've been really diving in to verse uh, 34 and this incredible hope that Paul talks about, the fact that... We, it's good news right because God is for us because of what Jesus has done for us that that he has died that he was raised he's ascended to heaven at the right hand of God and now he's making way between us and God he's he's interceding between us and God um, I want to finish by, by looking at what Paul has has hung on the rest of this uh, on the rest of this thought I w- as he finishes out this passage um, I want us to look at that together do we do we have that one up there uh, 35 through. Thirty-nine. Okay, great. Okay, perfect. It's there. So I want us to really just kind of meditate on this in our last few minutes before we before we sing. And and I'm going to read this, and then we're going to go right into the song. And so before we do that, I just want to say, if if God's working in your heart this morning, and there's uh, there's a response, right? Because because we know that when we read the Word of God, it it's living and active, and it changes us, and we have a, we respond to that. Right, We have a response to what we've heard from the Word of God. And so this morning, if your response is a place that, you know what, I've never put my faith and complete trust in Jesus as the one who has died and rose again. And I want to do that today, right, so that he's interceding between me and the Father. Um, we'd love for you to do that. I'm going to be standing Kind of over here by this table this morning. Um, if if your response this morning is just, man, I just want to be grateful and praise, feel free to to just pray right where you're at this morning. Um, or if there's something else that God's laying on your heart this morning, uh, we'd be glad to pray with you this morning. Uh, feel free to come over and talk to me, or you can talk with somebody that was in your group um, to pray with you. Um, but I want us to kind of end our time this morning by just reading through and listening through what it is that Paul has said, and then we're gonna sing this song. Called "Behold Our God," that just is an anthem of the greatness of our God and Savior. And so, uh, matthew uh, so Matthew, Romans chapter eight, uh, starting in verse thirty-five, Paul continues on as he discusses what it is that Jesus has done. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. This morning, church, let's be encouraged. God is for us. And we know that because of Jesus, because of his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his intercession for us. And if all that is true, then we can know that there is nothing that will separate us from that love. And so I invite you to stand as we sing just this praise to our Father for what He's done through the Son in each one of our lives.